What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we are going to talk about biodiversity because there was just a massive summit on biodiversity attended by many heads of state and there's a new financial task force formed to help investors understand how biodiversity affects a company's operations. And then we discuss the details of the largest IPO ever to come on the market. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. A new organization was announced in July in response to the growing concern around the destruction of Earth's biodiversity. Set to go into effect in early 2021, it's called the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, or TNFD, and it looks to reduce the negative impacts of the financial sector on nature and diversity. Born through a partnership between Global Canopy, the United Nations Development Program, the United Nations Environmental Program Financial Initiative, and the Worldwide Fund for Nature, the group is concerned that financial institutions do not understand the importance biodiversity has on their operations. Biodiversity can be characterized as our ecosystem services, provisioning such as the production of food and water, regulating such as the control of climate and disease, supporting such as nutrient cycles and oxygen production and culture such as spiritual and recreational benefits. The predecessor of this organization is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures or TCFD, but the big difference here is the TCFD focused on carbon emissions and the effects of rising temperature, and the TNFD is focused on land use and land degradation. And the risks to ignoring land degradation are uh, pretty obviously immense, but there are also opportunities from actually acting on this problem. The World Economic Forum estimates in a recent publication that positive transition away from the degradation of biodiversity could generate U.S. $10.1 trillion in annual business value and create 395 million jobs by 2030. So I asked my colleague Jillian Malad on ESG Research what the TNFD is projecting as their main goal to achieve the protection of biodiversity. So um, the, the, the big goals is to come up with a, a metric to be able to say this is how reliant uh, a, a company is on nature and, and these are the ways that a company can uh, reduce their, their impacts on, on nature. And, and mitigate against biodiversity threats. Um, so really being able to kind of similarly to the way that we look at um, vulnerability times hazard times exposure to be able to define a company's um, climate risk exposure, we're going to be able to have a similar metric um, with with uh, biodiversity. Or to put it even simpler, the TNFD is focused on a company's supply chain. And that might seem like an unambitious goal, but at the moment, it is actually extremely difficult for people outside of a corporation to know where its raw materials are sourced. Investors can technically own a company, but not know where the material they own is located. And so that means for Jillian and our colleagues, we have to search out alternative sources to understand how a company might be at risk because of its supply chain. And those sources aren't always standardized. 
And I want you just to know how difficult that really is. And Jillian will tell you more. Um, yeah, no, this happens uh, all the time. So we do um, have some information on company operations. And when you're looking at, for instance, a mine where there's a site and it's just one site where the materials are sourced and the mine operations are also at the same site, it's easier to track when there's um, an impact on the natural systems. And mines are notorious for being pretty impactful on biodiversity. So uh, something like analyzing uh, the operations of a mine in terms of biodiversity loss is, is much easier than looking at a clothing company where um, they might not even know where all their fibers are being sourced. They might know, you know, a, a, a country where their fibers are being sourced or a region where their fibers are being sourced, but they might not know the site-specific location. And biodiversity exposure is very site-specific. So really, un to truly understand how operations are affecting uh, our natural systems, you have to know exactly where the uh, materials are being sourced from. A good example of that is palm oil. AP News recently issued a report about the labor abuses and extensive environmental damage at palm oil plantations in Malaysia and Indonesia and linked them to top brands like Unilever, L'Oreal, Nestle, and Procter & Gamble. Nestle, Unilever, L'Oreal have committed to not purchasing palm oil from unsustainable sources, but that would require these companies to ensure that they knew the location of the plantation their palm oil was purchased from. Yet as AP News and Mongo Bay News and other news outlets have reported, the companies have really only been able to confirm to investors and the public the location of the mills that process the palm oil not the actual plantations. This is an important distinction because the alleged abuses often occur at the plantation level. But there's also the issue of companies being at risk not because they directly hurt biodiversity, but because biodiversity loss hurts them. An easy example is what the loss of pollinators is doing to the farming industry. According to a study by the University of California, Berkeley, California agriculture reaps 937 million to 2.4 billion US dollars per year in economic value from wild free living bee species that serve the critical function of pollinating crops. The loss of those species due to biodiversity collapse would be catastrophic for that industry. And the macro costs of ignoring these problems were illuminated at the UN Biodiversity Summit that occurred last week. The loss of 1 million species, trillions of dollars lost from our economy. And while Jillian is right about some risks being site-specific, there is a systemic risk at hand. The UN and other scientists warn what could happen to our society if biodiversity loss is so great that it causes a tipping point in our natural world. But can some of this be helped by actions taken by the TNFD? Since the TNFD doesn't become a reality for a couple more months, I thought it would be good to look at the actions taken by its predecessor, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. So I asked my colleague Brendan Baker if the TCFD has been making progress on their mission of making sure companies are aware of the risks caused by their carbon emissions. It hasn't been a silver bullet. It's not like the TCFD was created and suddenly... Now, all climate-related risks were completely understood, managed, and aren't a problem anymore. You know, that there were nuances to what the framework was to, was to provide. And, and essentially, you know, it was broken down into four pillars. So around governance, around strategy, around risk management, and metrics and targets. And there were, you know, a number of, um, I guess, 
categories underneath those four key pillars that recommended what needs to be disclosed. So with the TCFD, companies began to disclose on things like whether they have carbon metrics and targets, whether they have a risk management process for avoiding the effects of rising temperatures, and whether their board and CEO understands and oversees the risks caused by climate change. And so all this is sort of like what the TNFD is going to try to do, make sure that companies understand the risks they face and ensure that companies can disclose on those risks to investors and the world. But the TCFD has been around since 2015, and they always put out these reports that show how those disclosures are going. The recent report just came out on 2019 numbers, and it found that disclosures actually increased overall. But that doesn't mean that they were actually ever high. Since 2016, when the first report came out, only around 25% of the representative companies in that the TCFD reviewed as part of their study disclosed information aligned with more than five of the 11 recommended disclosures. And only 4% of companies disclosed information aligned with at least 10 of the recommended disclosures by the TCFD. So that's not a great example for the TNFD to follow. And Brendan actually found another problem with these TCFD disclosures. Like any disclosure or... Um, initiative that that comes up like this risks greenwashing so you know it, it risks the fact that companies can put together a glossy sustainability report that is very cleverly done that tries to say that they are aware of all of these risks and um, there's no problem and that they have it all sorted um, and it's a problem because you know, uh, uh, part of the TCFD is that, you know, there are suggestions about what type of disclosure needs to be required, but it isn't that prescriptive. For example, one of the things TCFD asked companies to do was to model a two degree scenario world. And it would show what that company would look like in the two degree scenario world and what their business risk would be like in a two degree scenario world. That is two degrees above the industrial limit that the Paris Agreement said was kind of the area where we would have catastrophic climate change if we got above that point. However, um, there, are, there are a multitude of two degree scenario worlds and, and each of them have a plethora of assumptions. And because there's a plethora of assumptions, um, you know, may, maybe some of these two degree scenarios are redundant. Maybe, maybe they've been made up by some other organization out there that is specifically tailored to a two degree world that's really beneficial for a particular industry. And therefore, if, if that industry, the constituents of that industry run against that scenario, then things look really peachy. Okay, I know this has been kind of a bit of a bummer episode. I mean, we had to do it because we have to explore this stuff because they're important risks. But it was just tough to listen to right now. So I pose the question to Brendan, does this mean that no one should care about these disclosures? Does this mean that, you know, the TNFD, the TCFD were basically screwed and we should just not do anything? And here's what he told me. I don't want to be negative about the TCFD because it's it's not my intent. You know, the old idiom of what you measure, you can manage is so pertinent with the TCFD because, you know, previously these disclosures weren't even required. So it was just a hodgepodge of, of disclosures. And now there's a key framework that enables investors to have that suite of climate-related data that they can then start to look at. And if disclosures do look like they need improvement, at least they've got a baseline to start from. So it's it's a it's a crucial part in all of climate risk management for the TCFD to to have existed. And then we may see more things like New Zealand ratifying TCFD uh, in law. So it's a huge step in providing 
climate-related data into the industry for investors to be able to manage it. Goddamn, New Zealand's been killing it in 2020. So that's at least a bright spot in all this kind of gray muck. The largest ever IPO is about to hit the market. It's a fintech company called Ant Group, and its valuation is expected to eclipse Saudi Aramco's 29.4 billion USD that it raised in its IPO, and Ant Group is likely to be valued at 225 billion USD. The Ant name is starting to make a bit more sense. That's a lot of little bills. In its original form, it was called Alipay, an online payment service created by Jack Ma to boost his online shopping empire, Alibaba's business. And now Alipay is basically the de facto access point to the Chinese financial system. It uses a predictable algorithm similar to the one it uses to predict sales patterns in consumers and will offer things like life insurance to the head of families or business loans to small businesses in need of capital. To tell us more about this, I have with me Andrew Young that has been writing about the anti-IPO in recent weeks. And so, Andrew, what are the ESG factors in play here with the anti-IPO? The risk here is, uh, from an ESG point of view, is whether these products are sold responsibly um, to small businesses uh, and to consumers. So that's uh, where we're looking at it uh, from uh, an ESG point of view. So that's uh, on the operational side. Uh, the other key point here is to understand the governance structure. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, it's it's. Uh, fair to uh, compare the, the company's governance structure to its former parent, Alibaba, um, in that um, Jack Ma calls all the shots at Alibaba, Jack Ma calls all the, shot, uh, the shots at Ant. Um, and uh, that's what uh, international investors uh, should understand. So that means when an investor purchases this IPO in the Hong Kong market, they might get all the mechanisms that every shareholder gets, like voting, but it's not going to make a difference because it's Jack Ma's way, right? Exactly. So um, because of the Hong Kong listing, um, shareholders are entitled to to um, to certain rights, uh, such as being able to uh, request a special meeting. Um, also, the company doesn't have a special shareholder structure. Uh, which means that each investor share is entitled to one vote. Um, so it ostensibly follows a one share, one vote principle. But once you dig into the, the corporate structure, uh, you'll start to understand um, that all uh, the shots are called by Jack Ma um, because of his uh, control of uh, the companies that own the majority stakes uh, in this uh, company, as well as through his holdings um, uh, and his control of Alibaba. And Alibaba has about a third of the shares uh, of Ant. And there's one big difference between Alibaba and Ant Group. Ant Group is listing in in Hong Kong and Shanghai. And I have to mention this because I'm American. They are not listing in the U.S. That means the likely largest ever IPO to hit our market will not be listed in the U.S. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Jillian, Brendan, and Andrew for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps, especially during COVID when I'm stuck at home with not much else to think about. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.